Welcome to True Nature Radio. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. We're very happy that Steve Marsden is back here again with us this week. We know, we're sure, that you enjoyed all of his information last week, and there's lots more that he has to offer. In particular, we're going to talk this week about some more cases and also some more specific ideas or some more concepts that Steve has an awareness of because of his unique position as a veterinarian. And, well, he treats animals and human animals. He has a clinic, actually, that treats both. So, Steve, one of the things that we didn't get to last week was that many people say that natural medicine works because of the placebo effect. But you've told us now that it works really well in animals. So how, what implications does this have for the placebo effect? Yeah, I think the whole argument that the placebo effect is operative is is flawed. Um, you know, holistic veterinarians are still rare. And one of the reasons they're rare is not so much that there isn't the public demand for them, but that it's somewhat of a... Um, well, they're sort of... They're not disenfranchised, but they're they're... But they're certainly it takes a while for people to decide to go see the holistic veterinarian. So people may come to see Heiner just because they're innately interested in Chinese medicine, but people go to see holistic veterinarians because they're frustrated. So right away, there's the flaw in the argument. If people were, let's say that somebody was going to see me, and likewise they were frustrated by their condition not getting better, if they were vulnerable to the placebo effect, why wouldn't they have gotten better the first time they went to see their MD? I mean, that was the first stop. Clearly, they thought they were going to get better. Why didn't they? So the fact that somebody has to go to see a doctor 20 times before they finally wind up at a holistic practitioner, right then and there, you know they're not the type of person to think themselves better or they would have done it. For animals, we have this added proof that the placebo effect is just not involved. In fact, well, it can be in the sense that owners can believe that their animals are better. So how does a veterinarian protect themselves against being misled like that? And one of the ways that I safeguard against that, because I don't want to be, I don't want to believe the animal's better if it's not. I'm just not in that kind of medicine. So I write down everything, every little factoid that supported what I thought was going on from a holistic perspective or a Chinese medical perspective. For the animal to be truly better, I need to see 70% of those things improving somewhat simultaneously. And if they are, then I know the animal's getting better. So somebody might say, oh, they stopped vomiting, and that means the acupuncture worked, but if five other things haven't gotten better, it's like, okay, well, you're giving credit where it's not due because it, it just stopped vomiting on its own. There's other five things haven't gotten better. I need to do something different. The opposite thing also occurs where sometimes we'll get one of the owners, usually the husband, who <laughs> is coming into the clinic you know, because he's alarmed at what his is a, a very misguided wife did last week and so he's coming in to sort of set the veterinarian straight and um, they'll go ahead and say that their dog's not better at all thank you very much what do you got to say about that and so I'll start kind of picking through these individual symptoms it's like well is this going on uh, well no I haven't seen that is that going on uh, no I don't think so is that going on well I haven't seen that happen and if I can likewise demonstrate that five or six or seven of those 10 things are better, then I know the dog is better. And so does that owner by the time I'm finished going through this detailed history. 
So that's how I safeguard against owners trying to sway me one way or the other. But what about the dog? I mean, if the dog really is that vulnerable or that prey to its emotions, the very moment you open a cat's jaws to shove a pill down his throat, if it's vulnerable to it, the mindset of like, you know, if its health depends on whatever mood it's in at the moment, it's just going to keel over and die. It's like, oh my God, here's the pill. I hate this. I hate the pill. It's going to do me absolutely no good. <laughs> They're dead. So they don't do that either. All they do is just get better if you put the right treatment in there, and they don't get better if you put the wrong treatments in there. And and uh, so I I don't buy the placebo argument at all, even for a lot of the people I see, because they've taken a long time to get around to seeing a holistic practitioner. That is not a person who's so interested in holistic medicine. They're just going to think themselves better. I'm off the belief if we want to advance natural medicine in this age of scientific materialism, it can only be done in one way. And yes, I'm personally a teacher who loves to teach about the classics and the theory associated with it, but I always tell my students, you need to have results in the clinic. But for that, you need to have patients that you can demonstrate these results on. And while I personally specialize in the treatment of difficult recalcitrant diseases, our own students very often do they see shoulder arm syndrome or sports injuries, et cetera, because that is what even our own profession of Chinese medicine has started to label itself as, as this is what we're good at treating, when I really think natural medicine is a real alternative for a lot of serious diseases. But because of various reasons, including also medical politics, we often, or at least at the beginning stages of our careers, we don't get our hands on those kind of patients, and as a result of it, often there is not the level of confidence there. So you're in a unique position there uh, by treating animals where that kind of fear is somewhat lesser. So can you tell us some observations and stories from that perspective how natural medicine can really treat some very serious diseases? Yeah, sure. I, I encountered that sort of thinking, too, that... Um, even when I came here, I kind of one of the naturopathic professors summed it up wrongly, I think, when she said that, you know, conventional medicine is good for acute care and and naturopathic therapies and Chinese medicine they're good for kind of chronic sorts of disorders. And I agree that chronic ailments, uh, holistic therapies shine, but that's not just because that's what they're good at. We're also good at saving lives with it too. And I feel sometimes like my job is like living archaeology, um, you know, when I apply these methods to animals who are literally at death's door and they turn the corner and kind of come back, I get a glimpse of the kind of power that probably brought these medicines to the attention of people oh so long ago. So one of the most recent cases was a case that my wife, Karen, treated, and it was a greyhound. And it was kind of an interesting case for her because she got into veterinary medicine in the first place because she was very interested in greyhound rescue. And she was very interested particularly in veterinary medicine because of the greyhounds that she thought should have been able to be saved but couldn't. And there was one brindle-looking greyhound that had this particular set of symptoms and it haunted her for the rest of her days and she became a veterinarian and that was her crusade. And so one day in comes a brindle greyhound with the exact same set of symptoms and it's like her entire veterinary career is 
distilling down to this very moment of Ken, after all these years of experience and training and this formative lesson, can she now save this dog? And the dog was in terrible shape. And it, it was surprised everybody because it, it had a, it, for several months, it had had these bleeding, uh, oozing sores, kind of fistulas on its side. And it was an actinomyces infection, which is kind of an uncommon bacterial infection, kind of half bacteria, half fungus, uh, it festering away in the side of the dog. And we tried antibiotics and we tried some herbs and nothing would really get rid of it, not the things that we tried. And so the owner kind of just eventually thought she'd just let the whole thing smolder and got away with that until the dog had a litter. And then the stress of whelping this big litter of pups, because big dogs have big litters, um, it just pushed the dog over the edge and the sores started to really grow and get very painful and drain a lot. So she came in, she brought the dog in to see one of our other veterinarians. She tried penicillin, which is certainly an antibiotic to use for that kind of problem. And within 24 hours, the dog was in acute liver necrosis. So its liver enzymes were, you know, normally your liver enzymes, regardless of what you're talking about, they should be, I don't know, 150. This dog was two, three, four, five thousand. Like they're just massively elevated. Um, the dog can't stand. It's panting and, and, panicked and moribund and febrile and severely dehydrated and it's severely jaundiced. But so jaundiced we couldn't even actually get an accurate laboratory reading. It was off the charts in terms of jaundice. And the dog is in renal failure. And <clears throat> what it became apparent was the dog was in septicemia, that maybe this was some sort of mixed infection and it had gone into the dog's bloodstream and was taking out every single organ simultaneously. So that's the kind of situation where veterinarians will probably just let the animal go. But, of course, Karn's haunted by this ghost of this other dog. She can't let this dog go. And so how do we save this dog? Plus, we're no longer in the business of letting dogs go. You know, we're, we're now in the business of saving dogs. Now we're in holistic medicine. So from a Chinese point of view, when you're dying, there's these two fundamental forces that make up your body. There's yin, your substance, essentially, and there's yang, kind of the power that animates you in a way. When the two merge, you generate qi. When the two split, you don't have qi. Qi being life force, they split, you have no life. This dog's yang was literally separating out of its body, and as it was doing so, the heart as a as a heat of its body was moving out to its periphery, it was driving its heart rate, it was putting the dog out of its mind, it had no power to stand anymore, but it was thirsty and it was panting and severely febrile. And from a Chinese point of view, we needed to shove that dog's yang energy firmly right back into its interior. So from a Chinese point of view, there's a, a kind of a cluster or a layer of your body between the inside and the outside that's called the Xiao Yang or the lesser Yang. And it's essentially a Yang energy pump. And it pumps Yang energy back into the interior and generates life force in the process. So we used a formula that was written in the Shang Han Lun. You know, it's a 2,000-year-old textbook. And we used this formula to pump this dog's Yang energy back into its interior. We don't have an intravenous form, so we gave it rectally just, and we give 
in, in critical cases like this, we'll give six or eight or ten times the normal dose in the space of a day rectally. So we're massive amounts of this herbal formula. And it gets absorbed into the portal circulation. First stop is the liver. And we used acupuncture using the same points that, that influence the Shaoyang meridians to drive Yang energy back into the interior. And so in the space of a couple of hours, this heart rate starts to slow down and the fever starts to drop and the dog kind of regains the ability to stand. We take the dog home with us and because uh, um, Karin's very invested in this now that she smells the whiff of success. And we keep plowing away with these herbal formulas. In the space of 48 hours, the dog was out of renal failure. In the space of probably a week, its liver enzymes were near normal. And by the time a month had gone by, the liver failure was completely resolved, the liver enzymes completely resolved, the jaundice completely gone, the, the sores had cleared up. Those sores the dog had been walking around with for, for years, they were gone too. And so that's just a, one of the more recent examples of taking something that's about to expire and literally pulling it right back out of the fire. You just gave us a wonderful example of how you used a very ancient medicine, a formula literally that's 2,000 years old, and used a way of reasoning that is also very old and is really a science in its own right. Can you give us some other example of where you encounter use for in modern times for using ancient reasoning uh, as a science in its own right that can help us explain certain phenomena in our modern everyday life where modern medicine maybe doesn't have an answer for or doesn't even think of looking into? I'm at a point now in my training where I can kind of I can viscerally sort of grasp what is going on with the patient's yang and yin, even as I'm seeing them from a conventional perspective. I can, I can kind of uh, three-dimensionally understand what's happening to them from a, a yang-yin perspective. So uh, that formula that I used was called chai hu jia longgu mu li tong, so bupleurum with dragon bone, which is really fossilized bone and oyster shell. So that formula is a lifesaver, and a lot of animals that die uh, acutely in regular veterinary practice, they are dying from this yang-yin separation and this failure to generate this third principle, qi, which is a p ability for things to happen, good things and bad things, but things to happen. Take away qi and you have an inert body. So there's most animals that are dying from gastric dilatation and volvulus or cancer or acute nephritis or septicemia, they're dying from this problem of yang and yin separating. One of the more, probably one of the other most um, stunning examples I can think of where no conventional medicine was applied at all was a dog with a hemangiosarcoma. Hemangiosarcomas are tumors of blood vessels. And the problem with a tumor of a blood vessel is it doesn't have to get very big before it's a huge problem because the animals bleed to death. Just a small tumor of maybe an inch or so in the abdomen and you can have uh, very large amounts of blood lost into the abdomen in very short order and that's usually enough to, to kill an animal. So it's always been a very difficult tumor for us to treat. And 
it's only recently that we figured out, knock on wood, how to at least to treat some of them. This one dog was in Newfoundland, and she's still around, and she's doing well, knock on wood. And she had a hemangiosarcoma, and she started bleeding. It was in her spleen. They took out her spleen, thought that everything was fine, gave her a transfusion. And then she came to see me for follow-up, and she still wasn't looking quite right. From a Chinese medical perspective, she still kind of had that dynamic of yang and yin separating, even though from a Western medical perspective, it's like, okay, well, we didn't see any metastases. The tumor's out. She should be good to go. So it, it concerned me, um, and I started treating her from that perspective of let's unite her yang and yin and generate her chi. Um, but I wasn't – I could tell that it wasn't working very well because I would – keep having her come back and her energy was still flagging. She wouldn't go on walks for very long. And I could feel in her pulse that her yang and her yin are separating. When, If any veterinarian who's felt the pulse of a dog with hemangiosarcoma will know what I'm talking about. It's this very forceful, slapping sensation. And we have very clear understandings of what's going on from a cardiovascular perspective, the physiology of that. But from a Chinese point of view, what that veterinarian is feeling is the yang energy escaping out of the dog. So one day she comes in and she's extra tired and I feel that pulse again. And I know that she's got another bleeding tumor inside her. There's only one thing in dogs that creates that pulse and that's a bleeding tumor. So at this point I feel like I'm proverbially screwed because I've never been able to pull the dog back from that level before. These owners are out of money. There's no way that they're going to stomach the thought of opening a dog back up and finding some other tumor. And realistically, she's probably got lots, not just one. So it's do or die. So I use that formula, that chai hu jiao longu mu li tong. But this time I tweaked it and I put in a fairly large amount of noto ginseng or san chi, which is a, a hemostatic herb as well. And I put in just a trace of Donggui or, or Angelica sinensis. And intuitively, I felt that mix might work well for us. It would reunite her yang and yin, but it would solve our concerns about stopping bleeding. And I was counting on the, the, the Donggui kind of helping to moisten the outer layer of the, of the dog, even as the rest of the formula is trying to drag the yang energy into the moist interior of the dog. I was trying to mix the dog, essentially, what I was trying to do. So I'll be darned if she went home and came back in a week and that slapping pulse is gone and her gums are pinker. And, you know, now we're, uh, I don't know, we're, seven, we're six or eight months out now and dog's right back to normal. And so that's the first time that I had a dog who was starting to bleed to death again, obviously had these big size tumors and was able to shrink those tumors back down to a size where they don't bleed. And for a hemangiosarcoma, that's a pretty small tumor. That brings up a, a related issue. A theme that we've had on the show is that Natural medicine is not only about what's happening inside the being, the human or the animal, but it's also about the relationship between that person or that being and the environment. And I'm wondering, because the animals that you're treating presumably have a more direct connection with nature than many of us do as human beings, is there anything you've learned in that way from your veterinary studies using natural and specifically Chinese medicine. I mentioned in a previous episode about one of my frustrations with conventional medicine was that certain salient features 
of the case, I couldn't explain it, really irritated me because I'm the kind of guy who needs to have an explanation for everything. So uh, I, I mentioned the dog coughing at 3 in the morning as an example. But other things that every veterinarian who's listening would freely acknowledge would be tendencies for, in the summertime, animals to get severely itchy, uh, whether it's flea allergy dermatitis or food allergy dermatitis. It doesn't matter. They're getting severe skin inflammation in the summertime. Their cats are getting urinary tract obstructions in the middle of winter. We have animals developing refractory seizures that are especially bad in the middle of winter. And it doesn't matter whether you have any interest in holistic medicine or not. Every veterinarian has noticed these seasonal tendencies. And there's oftentimes not a very clear explanation. So I recently read a study um, that the, there's a college called the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies, uh, CIVTEDU.org, and they have a newsletter. So you can become a member of that college and for you get this great newsletter. It's just rife with case reports on treated animals, etc. And one of them, it all, they also synopsize some of the literature. And so people have even looked for are seizures tied to the moon, the phase of the moon. And this article said definitely we can't build that correlation, and neither could I. And yet it seemed that there was this pressure-relieving aspect to epilepsy that it, it somehow was really important. And so for... You know, for decades, it's bothered me that I can't figure these refractory epileptic cases that seem to just need to blow their tops every month or so, and sometimes some seasons more than others, it's really perturbed me. So the only explanation we have for a lot of these seasonal tendencies that really works well in terms of leading us to effective treatments is the Chinese medical explanation. So one day I sat down and I took out everything that I could find on seasonal diseases from whatever classics I had in my hand. I put them all down on a sheet of paper and I just started trying to put the whole picture together. And from that picture, I, could, I, I tested my understanding of it. I would actually go onto a website like PubMed and I would look at the medical literature and I would see if the seasonal, the diseases that I thought there should be a seasonal incidence of at this time, I would see if I was right. And lo and behold, I was. So we have this Chinese medical model having this predictive value. And if that's not scientific, I don't know what is. So let's use an example of epilepsy. Normally, over the course of a year, and the same pattern is mimicked over the course of the day, you start off the day and your yang energy and your yin energy, they're all supposed to be kind of together, generating that chi. So they kind of move together. You might intuitively think that yang and yin move in opposite directions, but they don't. From what I can tell, they move exactly together in sort of lockstep from the interior of the body to the exterior and back in one giant pulsatile throb, a big one that happens over the course of a year and a smaller one that happens over the course of a day. So when you wake up in the morning, your yin is more internalized. Your yang is more internalized. And round about noon, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock, your yang energy is on the inside. Your yin has moved out to the, to the periphery as well. And now it's kind of everything kind of moving back in. At nighttime, around beginning, you know, say, around uh, 7 or 9 p.m. or so and stretching all the way through to about 3 a.m., that's a time of day when they're supposed to be maximally internalized. But in some animals, there's a problem. And that problem is where 
yin energy, you can imagine yin energy sometimes behaves like a sponge. A sponge that gets wrung so tight that there's no room for yang energy to be kind of integrated or intermingled with it. And it pops back out again. And so you have this, you can imagine the animal being sort of this three-dimensional sphere of this hard yin core and this wrapped by yang energy. And you get a whole subset of symptoms that occur from that. And if if you're thinking to how we started this whole radio show, you realize, isn't that another example of yang-yin separation? Like, can't that lead to death too? And yes, it can. And this leads to death by perforated duodenal ulcers. This leads to death by um, seizures that go out of control. And we have status epilepticus as an example. From a Chinese medical perspective, this is called a, an excess zhui-yin disorder. And I like to think of it as an exercise excessive pressurized or compressed yin disorder where it's the, the, the two forces are no longer mingled. So this is all just gobbledygook unless you can make it work. So there's a new form that we're trying out for refractory epileptics. And once I stumbled onto this, I looked in Heiner's book that he had written for ITM years ago, and lo and behold, it's listed for things like encephalitis and meningitis, not so much for seizures, but show me an encephalitis patient isn't seizuring. So I figure it'll cover that too. And the form is designed to soften up that hard, pressurized pellet of yin to allow this yin energy to kind of get soaked up into it. So there are herbs in there to basically pull the yang energy in, and there's herbs in there to kind of soften up the yin and even expand it a little bit to try to make some room. We're trying that out in these refractory epileptics, and it's working. So this is another 2,000-year-old formula. Now, you read about this formula, which is called Wu Mei Wan, or it's, it's basically it's a, a, a formula that's based on a type of sour plum. You read about that book, and all it talks about is that this is an intestinal parasite formula. And I think in Heiner's book, he even comments, or perhaps it was another reference saying, we can't really find any anti-parasitic effect of this, and so we tend to embellish it with other anti-parasitic herbs. What I came to realize is the formula isn't treating the parasites. The parasites are taking advantage of the fact that there's a suitable host. So if you think about what would it be like to have a bunch of yang energy in your head and in the upper and outer parts of your body, you'd be really hungry, really thirsty. And if yang energy is not deep in your interior, what are you not going to have? You're not going to you're going to have small bowel diarrhea. And so the yang energy is compartmentalized. It's not in deep in your belly. There's no fire in your belly. There's no digestion. There's just a ravenous stomach and then some cold, incompetent digestive tract below that. And that's what parasites take advantage of. So it happened, and some of the I believe there's I don't know what people's thoughts are about religion. However, I believe that there's definitely a case dispenser in the sky. And the case dispenser in the sky, he or she, it, sends me cases, I think, to kind of help me figure things out. And so some of the first cases I've got of these refractory epileptic dogs, guess what they also had? Refractory parasites. And they just wouldn't respond to any dewormers at all. And I began to realize that this Wu Mei Wan was never intended to kill parasites. It was intended to mix yin and yang enough in the patient that that patient couldn't support a parasite. You don't need dewormers. You just need to treat the host. It's basic epidemiology, but we often forget it. 
Anyway, so it's working. I'm tinkering with it, but it's working for refractory epilepsy, and it's also kicking the parasites out to boot. You know, Steve, that makes me think of the case that you talked about earlier with the brindled greyhound. Both of these cases, what you've alluded to is that it's not the parasite itself. Even the antibiotics didn't treat the greyhound. It really, in both cases, shows that it's the state of the animal. It's what in some natural medicine circles is referred to as the terrain. You know, the really important thing is that we support the terrain of of our bodies. Um, And I think your cases show that really well. Yes, it's, it's, we tend to forget when we graduate from medical school that there is a an epidemiological triad or triangle with host at one point, environment at one point, and um, treatment or uh, the, the host, the environment, and the germ at all three different points. And in Western medicine, we're always focused on the germ. And if you're a really good practitioner, you'll kind of look at the environment and see why is that animal getting infected. But we just don't know what to do with the hosts. And really that's one of the big blessings that holistic medicine brings to practice is that for the first time you're actually able to just treat the host and have these other problems fall away. Even flea allergies. I mean, people ask me about flea allergies. Like my dog's itching, they're scraping themselves raw, they're covered in flea dirt, which is really just dried blood, and their skin feels like Rice Krispies every time I touch them from just how crusty it all is. How can you tell me you can't use some sort of anti-flea agent on that animal? Like, how could you get them better? And maybe, you know, certainly an anti-flea agent is going to help, but fleas need blood. You can't support a big population of fleas unless they're getting ready access to blood. All we do is we use herbs and acupuncture to internalize an animal's circulation, which is naturally peaked when you know flea allergies are a big problem in the middle of summer. All we do is just mitigate that. We just pull the blood supply away, and we starve out the flea population. All I needed to do was treat the host, and we just don't have drugs that treat hosts, and that's really where alternative medicine shines. Steve, thank you so much for all of these enlightening stories and the many, many different concepts that you brought to light through your experiences as both a veterinary and a human medical doctor, both using Western medicine and um, natural medicines, naturopathic Chinese medicine, so many different modalities. So we really appreciate you being here. And that's it for today for actually two episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a blast. Dr. Steve Marston is one of the world experts in the field of treating animals naturally. And if you're interested in more aspects of his work, go to edmonton-veterinary.com where you can learn more about his clinical practice as well as his teachings and some of his writings are there. Or you can pick up one of his books, Manual of Natural Veterinary Medicine or the Textbook of Herbal Veterinary Medicine. If you're interested in learning more about the school that Dr. Marston went to, go to ncnm.edu or go to classicalchinesemedicine.org for more information about ancient medicine as a science in its own right. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Join us next week for another episode of True Nature Radio.